The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The, the prevailing truth was tension. Gosh, it was tense. Very polarized country. And where the possibility of violence around the election, the possibility of a Brazilian version of January 6, was always hanging heavy in the air. In fact, even as we record this, the threat has not totally passed. There are still dozens of roadblocks set up around the country by pro-Bolsonaro protesters who are essentially unhappy over the result and either trying to express their displeasure or in some cases produce enough instability that in their minds the military might feel tempted to intervene and take over the country in order to support Bolsonaro and prevent Lula from taking office. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 4th, 2022. On October 30th, Brazilians elected Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva as their next president. Within minutes, world leaders, including President Biden and Secretary Blinken, offered official congratulations. For Lula's supporters, the atmosphere was celebratory but tense, as many wondered if Lula's opponent, incumbent Jair Bolsonaro, who once said the election would end either in his death, arrest, or victory, would accept the legitimate results of the election. To talk through that election and its aftermath, I sat down once again with Brian Winter, editor-in-chief of America's Quarterly, and a journalist with over a decade living and reporting across Latin America. We discussed whether warnings of an election crisis were alarmist or not, what's next for Bolsonaro and his movement, and what to watch for during Lula's first 100 days. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 4th. Ciao, Bolsonaro. What to make of Brazil's election results with Brian Winter. So, Brian, this isn't your first rodeo on the Lawfare Podcast. We actually spoke, if listeners recall, uh, just over a month ago, uh, which was just under a week before the first round of the general election in Brazil. So I want to first ask from a high level sort of first draft of history, what has happened in Brazil since we last spoke? Well, first of all, thank you, Tyler, for the invitation. As a Texan, I very much enjoyed the rodeo analogy. And as someone who follows Brazil, I don't even know where to start when it comes to recapping everything that's happened since we last spoke. But I suppose the short version is that there was a an election in Brazil, as I'm sure your audience knows. Uh, the former president, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, won by a smaller uh, than expected margin of about two percentage points. And after a period of suspense and tension in the days after the vote, where uh, President Bolsonaro was very quiet, did not say a single word in public, he came out and he didn't explicitly accept the result, 
But he did say that he would follow the Constitution and authorized his chief of staff to say that a transition would take place normally. And that was about as close to a white flag as we were ever likely to see from Bolsonaro. So, you know, in the end, it seems that Brazil's institutions have held up, at least for now. Um, but there's still a lot of uncertainty ahead and, and an interesting story as to why things turned out this way. And apologies for setting you up for failure on that first question. It reminds me of the thing that Lenin may or may not have said where, you know, there are weeks in which decades happen or something like that. So there are certainly uh, months, I guess, in Brazil in which decades happen. Mm-hmm. So to dig in a bit more, um, you know, I, I definitely want to get into Bolsonaro's concession or lack thereof this so far mostly peaceful transition, but I'd like to first just drill down on, on some of the election data. You know, what, ha- what did the election results tell you, um, especially region by region? Uh, was it as predicted? I know we, we, we talked a bit about the polls and, and their reliability or, or not last time we spoke. So what did some of the election, the immediate election data uh, tell you both in the first and second round? Well, the election said ultimately that the desire to vote for Lula and specifically the desire to at least try to turn back the clock to Brazil's last great period of prosperity, which was the 2000s when Lula was president, that desire was what really prevailed in this election, particularly in Brazil's Northeast, um, which is the poorest part of the country. It's the part of the country where people saw their lives improve the most during Lula's first presidency, and they voted for him in overwhelming numbers in this election. And that was what essentially brought uh, Lula to victory, because in pretty much the rest of the country, Bolsonaro did quite well. And that was what allowed this election to be so close despite everything that has happened over the last four years, a pandemic that has killed nearly 700,000 people, second only to the United States, a mediocre at best economic record, all the problems in the Amazon with the fires and illegal deforestation and everything else. Despite all of this, 49% of the country decided that they wanted a second term of Bolsonaro. And I, I think that speaks to a, a broader conservatism that is growing in Brazil, as well as Lula's real problems in convincing and reaching the middle class. I'm also curious in, uh, you know, immediately after the election results were announced on Sunday, and then in the days since, what your sense of the feeling on the ground in Brazil has been either maybe through friends or colleagues, or if you were there yourself. Yeah, what's been the tenor? Has it been one of, of celebration? I, I guess it depends on, on who you ask and where you are. But were there any scenes that you saw that really stuck out on your mind um, on election night or since then? So I should say that I am in New York when I watched the election from here. But I, I was in Brazil on the ground about a month ago. And watching and being tapped into what's happening there is my job. And so I have been um, pretty much every moment of every day for the last several weeks been focused on Brazil. And the mood, I would say, does depend on on which side you were on. But I think the the prevailing truth was tension. 
gosh, it was tense. Very polarized country. And where the possibility of violence around the election, the possibility of a Brazilian version of January 6th was always hanging heavy in the air. In fact, even as we record this, the threat has not totally passed. There are still dozens of roadblocks set up around the country by pro-Bolsonaro protesters who are essentially unhappy over the result and either trying to express their displeasure or in some cases produce enough instability that in their minds, the military might feel tempted to intervene and take over the country in order to support Bolsonaro and prevent Lula from taking office. But I would say, you know, not only is that an impossible scenario at this point, um, that's not a word I use lightly at, at this stage, it's, it's impossible. But it's also the last, really the last hours have seen a real easing of those tensions after Bolsonaro came out and again, said just enough to deescalate the situation. And so attention now is is starting to turn to what will happen when Lula takes office on January 1st. Yeah. First, I'll say as one of your Twitter followers, I can I can confirm that you do, in fact, live and breathe <laughs> Brazilian <laughs> politics you have. And it was encouraging to see uh, you post a photo of a, be- of a beautiful tree the other day. So it, it was nice to see that you are stopping to smell the flowers at times. Um, but I, I want to get into some of those pro-Bolsonaro protesters you mentioned uh, who created the roadblocks and, and you know caused some some form of, uh, of unrest. From what you could tell, um, what was the scale of this? Are these a few disgruntled Bolsonaristas or is this you know indicative of, of potentially a larger trend? No, this was very serious. This was thousands of people uh, at hundreds of roadblocks across the country. And this kind of protest, you know, I've, I've worked in virtually every country in Latin America, and I'm, of course, originally from the United States. And I would say that each country has its own culture of protest and different, different kinds of protests show different things. A trucker's protest in Brazil is about as serious as it gets, in part because let's remember this is a continent-sized country. It's bigger than the continental United States and relies more than most countries on trucks in order to get basic goods. I'm talking about uh, food, medicine, fuels, etc. around the country. So these trucker strikes don't happen very often. When they do, they are treated very seriously. And so this was an attempt by pro-Bolsonaro supporters, including uh, these truckers who have received several uh, subsidies and kind of other benefits from the Bolsonaro government to reinforce their support for him. Um, This was an attempt to overturn the result, or at the very least, show that they were Uh, hopping mad about the conditions in which the election took place. It was exacerbated by another category of people, professionals, very loyal to Bolsonaro, which is the highway patrol, which again, to an international audience might say, oh, the highway patrol, that's not that big a deal. But it really is. They are the only force standing between some degree of rule of law and anarchy on these long stretches of otherwise unpatrolled roads between Brazilian cities. And they essentially refused 
to clear these roadblocks in the initial hours after they showed up. This highway patrol also engaged in, uh, in my opinion, very clear attempts at voter suppression on election day, pulling over buses of people, basically harassing them in an attempt to make it harder for them to vote. It doesn't seem that they stopped anyone from doing so, but the message was clear. And look, I, I, at, the, at the end of the day, this is a movement that should, you know, again, I think temperature is going to come down significantly over the next couple of days. But this represents a conservative, uh, mobilized portion of Brazilian society that is going to be a constant thorn in Lula's side once he takes office. Yeah. And, and just to follow up on that, you know, it, it seems like these these protests occurred during that, that 48 hour period, really, when, when Bolsonaro himself was quiet. So is it safe to assume that many of these protests happened not at Bolsonaro's direction. And and that also leads to, I think, a, a follow-up question, which is, you know, just how much are Bolsonaro himself and the Bolsonaristas still in lockstep? Or, you know, is this movement moving beyond Bolsonaro uh, himself? Well, there's been some question in the press and amongst in Brazil's Congress about just how spontaneous these protests were, whether there was some degree of coordination coming from either the presidential palace or somewhere else in the Bolsonaro government. I suspect that will be investigated in weeks and months to come. I can tell you that much of Bolsonaro's base was very disappointed in him when he effectively signaled retreat in his statements the other day when he, he said that he, he, he did not actively contest the election. And look, as so often happens with Brazil these days, there are clear echoes of what happened with the United States. I have to say, as an American who follows Brazil for a living, I, I am constantly questioning whether those parallels are misleading, meaning I'm constantly saying, gosh, are you being yet another egocentric American who thinks that everything happening out, th out there in the world is somehow an echo of what goes on in the United States? And usually the answer to that question is no. And that's partly explained by the fact that these movements, they are similar. There, there are many of the most influential supporters of the president on social media and elsewhere live in the United States, including in South Florida. And uh, Bolsonaro himself has made no secret of his uh, attempts to imitate Trump, most, uh, most famously when he when Bolsonaro did a Facebook Live where all he did was uh, turn on a TV showing a speech by President Trump and then just sat there and watched Trump speak for 45 minutes. It was pretty incredible. So just like we saw in the days after the 2020 election here in the United States, there are um, supporters of Bolsonaro who are angry at the president for not digging in, uh, for having caved in their minds. Uh, there are people who were pouring through his message the other day saying that there were secret signs from the president that he actually wanted them to continue protesting because the election would have eventually be overturned. Um, so, you know, sometimes sometimes the parallels aren't there, but oftentimes they are. And, and this is certainly the case with Bolsonaro's supporters. I didn't know that about the the Facebook Live. That's a, a true showman move, you could say. 
I want to turn to the reception by world leaders. As you well know, and probably many of our listeners noticed, world leaders, including President Biden and Secretary Blinken and President Macron, among others, nearly immediately congratulated Lula, I think within minutes of the election results uh, being confirmed, offering official congratulations, tweets, etc. Why do you think they moved so quickly? And uh, not to offer too much of a leading question, but do you think this achieved the perhaps intent of, of shoring up Lula's legitimacy at home? Well, I think that many people, both inside and outside Brazil, sensed the threat to Brazil's democracy in this election, uh, that they had listened very carefully to statements by President Bolsonaro and members of his inner circle over the past year as the possibility of a loss became more likely. And there was concerted action behind the scenes by governments in the United States and in Western Europe in particular to do what was in their power, not to favor Lula or to attack Bolsonaro by any stretch of the imagination, but to try to do the best that they could to make sure that Brazilian democracy was protected. And part of that was issuing a statement supporting the election result immediately after it became final, no matter who the winner was. And I I think in the end, the actions by the international community were one of a series of things that cut off the potential escape paths for Bolsonaro as, uh, you know, when he did lose the election. I believe that if he had had the opportunity to contest this election, he would have done so. But in the end, the actions by the international community, as well as by the Brazilian equivalent of the Speaker of the House, uh, basically the president of the House of Deputies in Brazil, who is a Bolsonaro ally, issued a very strongly worded statement immediately after the results of the election were final, saying that the will of the people expressed through the vote must not be contested under any circumstances. Once that happened, plus all the actions from the international community, it was pretty much game over for Bolsonaro. And uh, especially the statement from the leader of Congress, I heard that it, it took him and his circle by surprise. And that may explain why we then saw this almost 48 hours of pure silence from Bolsonaro after the election result became clear. It gave the impression, at least, that he simply did not know what to do next. In a related question, what do you say to uh, the, let's not call them haters, let's call them skeptics who say, look, you know, I heard your your warning signs of an imminent election crisis, but it looks like, you know, there was no coup, you know, crisis avoided. What was the big deal? You know, what would you say to that that line of questioning? Yeah, it's a good question. And there have already been some, let's say, attempts at revisionist history pointing to Bolsonaro's retreat as a sign that he was actually a Democrat all along, and that these warnings about a Brazilian January 6th that came from many people, myself included, and really the year prior to the election, that this was, you know, essentially alarmist or disingenuous hype coming from political rivals 
or journalists and analysts who were looking for clicks. You know, I don't think it's probably worth our time at this stage to restate all the things that Bolsonaro and his inner circle said over the past year and a half. You know, very briefly, I mean, Bolsonaro did say at several points that the only way that he was going to lose was via fraud. He spent months casting doubt on Brazil's electronic voting system uh, and saying that it it could essentially be rigged. Uh, There were calls by Bolsonaro's supporters uh, as soon as 48 hours before the second round urging him to do his best to try to delay the election because of grievances they had. But look, ultimately, at the end of the day, I think the most effective thing to point to in retrospect is uh, a statement by uh, Silas Malafaya, an evangelical pastor who was so close to Bolsonaro and campaigned so hard for him uh, that he actually accompanied Bolsonaro to Queen Elizabeth's funeral. And Malafaya said in a in a statement very shortly after the election became final, he said to a Brazilian newspaper that Bolsonaro would have to present massive proof in order to contest the election and that it was better uh, to just accept the will of the people and the fact that he had lost. And that to me, and I could point to other statements from similar people, but my point here is that Even Bolsonaro's closest, most loyal allies understood that this desire to undermine and perhaps uh, refuse the result was always in the air. And a lot of them were, to their credit, against it and didn't want to go down that road. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, 
They informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And I'm sure to that previous question, um, you know, anyone who was raising the alarm bells is probably all too happy to be quote-unquote wrong <laughs> about there being a coup or not. Although, as you as you well pointed out, it wasn't not quite a matter of, of being right or wrong there. Well, it, it reminds me of a lot of the cycles that we saw here in the United States. And I, I subscribe to the Wall Street Journal because I think their news section is great. But I did spend the Trump years uh, at least flipping through uh, the content on their editorial and opinion page. And after all these crises that we had here in the United States, and I'm thinking of uh, there were so many. Uh, the Wall Street Journal editorial board would very predictably come out and essentially say, oh, well, you see, nothing happened. This just shows that the liberals were, you know, all panicky and, and that there was never there was never any danger in the first place, even when we knew that wasn't true. And I, I to me, it shows that, you know, when the institutions 
act the way they're supposed to. And when democratic actors stand in the way of aspiring autocrats, sometimes it works. And that then allows these kind of second guessers or Monday morning quarterbacks, I I suppose we sometimes call them in the United States, to then point to the whole episode and, and act as if there was no threat all along. But that wasn't the case here in the United States, and I, I don't believe it was the case in Brazil either. I think the fact that the that disaster was averted is because of the actions of a lot of various individuals and, and interest groups. Right. The the dog that didn't bark, so to speak. Yeah. You mentioned that, you know, I think one of the reasons we didn't hear from Bolsonaro for you know well on two days was that he was sort of at a loss as to his next steps. Now that the the dust is is starting to settle, though I don't want to to jinx anything. Um, you know what are Bolsonaro's next steps? Um, I think this is an interesting question, especially because we seem to be perhaps entering an age of the political comeback. Uh, with you don't have to look far. I mean, look at look at Lula, perhaps the greatest <laughs> political comeback in in uh, recent history. Um, look now to uh, you know on the other side of the political spectrum. You look now to Israel. It looks like Netanyahu is is likely to make a comeback as well. Um, what can that tell us about the future of, of the Bolsonaro movement? Well, I think that part of the reason that Bolsonaro ultimately backed down was because there were no paths available to him to contest the result. But also a big part of the story was the success of his conservative movement in this election. And Bolsonaro had allies begging him to not burn the house down on his way out, to not invoke violent civil unrest or otherwise try to contest the election in a way that might cast disgrace upon the broader conservative political movement or put them all in legal trouble. Remembering that Brazil is a country where if you are convicted of crimes, um, you can lose your political rights and the ability to run for office in the future. Even though Bolsonaro lost this election, his movement walks away in a very strong position. Whether Bolsonaro himself will be able to come back, that's not as clear to me um, for many of the same reasons that it's not clear that that Donald Trump will be able to make a a comeback, age being one of those factors. Um, There are always new voices, new new people emerging, and I think that there will be several potential standard bearers coming out of this election from people who, who Bolsonaro's relative popularity helped elect. But, you know, these guys and the movement that they represent are, are going to be powerful in Brazilian politics for a long time to come. And speaking of those figures, especially as we turn to now talk about what to look for in a Lula administration, how will Lula have to court some members of the opposition or not in his administration? How will he have to work with them? Well, it's a mystery. Uh, because this Congress will be more conservative than the current one, and certainly more conservative than the one that Lula worked with during his first presidency from 2003 to 2010. Brazil is a country where the Congress, there, there are more than 25 political parties in Congress, and where marshalling together the support that you need to stay in office and get your agenda passed has traditionally involved either bribery or what we politely call in the United States a pork barrel spending, which is really just a a legalized form of 
dishing out money and or favors to to congressmen. And the issue here is that Lula, because of his past, because of the corruption convictions that led him to spend nearly two years in prison before those convictions were annulled um, by the Supreme Court, uh, that means that Lula will be put to a higher degree of scrutiny than probably any other president in Brazilian history, and also held to a high, higher ethical standard. And that's all fine and good. The issue here is that without those kinds of mechanisms, it's just not that clear to me how power can be exercised in a place like Brasilia, where a lot of these parties are very transactional. Uh, some of them don't really even have a firm platform or ideology. They just have created a business model that is focused on being close to whichever party or leader happens to be in any power in power at any particular moment. So that's all a way of saying, you know, that's that's the political challenge in Brasilia. And then you have an economy that has looked better this year, although some of that is certainly because of money that Bolsonaro was pumping into the economy to try to make people feel better in an attempt to get himself reelected. It didn't work. And so, you know, Brazil's economy will inevitably come down from that sugar high. And, you know, ultimately, there's been kind of a long malaise in Brazil's economy that is the reason why your average Brazilian today is 10% poorer than he or she was 10 years ago, um, which is a really a, an astounding statistic if you think about it. So certainly no shortage of, of, of issues and challenges facing Lula. And what do we know concretely so far about the makeup of a Lula administration? You know, what's your sense of the coalition that's materializing among you know, this multi-party system? And, and do we know, for example, of any cabinet picks that are very likely? From what I understand, uh, I was reading some reporting from Reuters that said that someone in, in Lula's party mentioned that the, the finance minister, which was is obviously going to be a contentious pick, was uh, intentionally left open-ended uh, for fear of hurting Lula's chances uh, if he named the wrong pick or something. So has any, now that the election is over, so to speak, uh, do we have a better sense of, of Lula's cabinet and coalition? Lula has shown that at least in theory, he understands the moment that he faces. He understands that this is a, a more conservative Brazil with a more fragmented political class and a certainly a more challenging external economic scenario than the one he faced 20 years ago. He's a smart guy. He's the most talented Brazilian politician of his generation. He has, among other things, an intuition for the moment and a pragmatic flexibility that has, many have compared him to a kind of chameleon or, or to quote an old Brazilian rock song, a walking metamorphosis over the years, which was a, a lyric that Lula once proudly quoted himself to describe his, his political identity. He, he's a man who has been able to change with the times. That said, and I, I don't want to be ageist here, but he's, he's 76 years old. And I look, I know some uh, 76-year-olds who have incredibly modern political minds, and I also know some young people who are already stuck in the past. But it's unclear still whether he will have the 
political agility to really meet the current moment. And part of that will involve inevitably bringing new people into politics, which I certainly think is necessary. If he just brings in the same people who he had uh, at the end of his presidency 12 years ago, as some of the initial reporting out of Brazil seems to suggest that he's considering, I don't see how that ends well because times are different. And you know he has to address issues like climate change that were present in his first administration, but are much more important now than they were back then, given, among other things, how, how terrible the situation has been in, in the Amazon over the last several years. So in, in sum, I, I, think, I think Lula has the ability to succeed and has shown through his speeches and actions that he knows that the moment is different. But to say that he will succeed is, is at this point a leap of faith. The first thing we really need to see as proof is the cabinet appointments, and we just don't have those yet. Hmm. As we look forward to Lula taking office in, in January, what should we look out for in to, to borrow an, an American political obsession in Lula's first 100 days? Well, let's start with the Amazon, which is a, a huge problem. Uh, and an area where during Lula's first government, he had a lot of success. He inherited very high deforestation back then, much higher than it is now. And over the course of his eight years in government, deforestation was reduced by 70%. I actually think this is Lula's best proof that his was an effective government capable of articulating financial resources, technical ambitions, um, and political support the first time around. Uh, this was not, you know, there are people who say that, oh, Lula was just lucky and he just benefited from the commodities boom that, that all of South American countries saw, mainly because of China during his first presidency. There is truth to that. But then you look at what happened in the Amazon. And to me, it's proof that at its best moments, uh, this really was good government in the traditional sense of the word. The problem is, is that, again, not to sound like a broken record, but Brazil has changed. And the regions of the country where deforestation has been highest, those areas voted overwhelmingly for Jair Bolsonaro in this election because people who live in those regions have come to the conclusion, many of them at least, that deforestation leads to economic growth. I, I disagree, and there are many facts that disagree, but that's that's not the point here. The point is that there is not a lot of political support in those regions of the country for the kinds of actions that will be needed for Lula to start bringing deforestation back down again. Uh, it is a problem that requires political support, financial resources, and you know a great technical ability to send in government inspectors and other things to make sure that that the fires aren't set in the first place. And so that, that to me is, is emblematic of the challenges he'll face. Uh, also at the top of the list, and some of these problems will sound very familiar to people all over the world, inflation is an issue, although at present inflation is actually lower in Brazil on an annual basis than it is in the United States, in part because their central bank acted more quickly than the U.S. Fed. And then the big challenge is, is the social challenge. Even though the economy has looked a little bit better in Brazil this year, uh, there's still an estimated 33 million Brazilians 
in a country of some 210 million who suffer from some degree of food insecurity or hunger. When I was in Brazil in September, the homeless population seemed larger uh, and more visible than at any point in the 20 years that I've been traveling to Brazil. And that's partly a result of the pandemic, but it's also a result of this long-term economic stagnation that Brazil has been suffering from. And this is a country that really fell down uh, around 2012, 2013, and has never fully gotten back up. And I know that that's what many Brazilians hope Lula will be able to do. That's why they elected him. But the, the challenges will be immense. I want to end on a question that has become something of an obsession around the lawfare offices. And that is, did Bolsonaro and his wife unfollow each other on social media uh, immediately following the election? And if so, why? <laughs> well, that was that was definitely uh, Brazil has a political media that loves gossip and loves personal intrigue, like in a lot of countries around the world. Uh, I did not personally go on to Instagram. I'm more of a Twitter guy myself to verify if this was actually true. But I, I did. You know, I'm just as. <laughs> just as much a, a gossip on these things as anybody else, I suppose. And what I read in the Brazilian media was that this was not actually the source of a dispute between the president and his wife, but the president's son and the first lady who have uh, apparently, and I, I, I don't always put 100% faith in these kinds of reports, but they've apparently had many conflicts over the last uh, year. And it's, it's, it's the son who controls the social media accounts. So um, I guess what this tells you, if you had to, to extract a serious lesson from this, it tells you uh, how tense things have been in Brazil over the last couple of months. But it also tells another story, which is how key social media is to politics in Brazil. And I, I look, I, I know that social media is important everywhere, but there have been studies showing that Brazil is one of the countries in the world where social media use is most intense. And to just tell you another story, a pro-Bolsonaro politician was just elected the governor of Rio de Janeiro. And in his, uh, in an interview, this politician complained about the fact that the president does not follow him on Instagram and kind of sniffed in the interview and said, maybe he'll follow me now. And I, I, so much of life now in Brazil and political life in particular is lived online. And these really petty questions about who follows who and who liked what and who didn't like the other thing it really does seem to define a lot of the relationships that we see. I, I find it fascinating. Well, apologies to you and the listeners for ending on the low note of gossip, but um, <laughs> like a true professional, you, you, uh, you, you drew out the, the real lessons in it. So with that, Brian Winter, aka Brazil Brian, thank you very much for once again coming on the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you so much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other offerings, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. 
our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.